Thanks, uh, Pauline, very much indeed. We're going to look at the whole of uh, Luke chapter 7 this morning, so keep it open in front of you. Before we get underway, let me bring greetings to you from Project Ruth in Romania that had uh, nothing but high praise for our young people and their leaders that were there in Bucharest uh, last October. Greeting also from the church, Providence uh, Baptist Church, where we're linked in uh, all kinds of different ways, not least our relationship with some of the ministers there, Otti in particular, known to many of us here. They all send their greetings to us. I also bring greetings from a church I didn't know, and that's First Baptist Church, Bucharest, where I preached a fortnight ago on the Sunday morning. And uh, I bring greetings from my home church in South Wales, Siloam Baptist Church, that loved me and nurtured me where I preached last uh, weekend as well. We're looking at uh, the way if you follow Jesus, you end up coming across all kinds of surprising people. And uh, as we get into Luke chapter 7, we're going to see Jesus meeting uh, people that perhaps, or blessing people that perhaps you would not have expected him to be meeting and uh, blessing. Just as a reminder, if you uh, uh, get bored, you can still go out for tea and coffee, or you can uh, decide on a question that you're going to ask. You can uh, tweet that to me, even while I'm speaking, if that floats your boat. Let's uh, pray together, shall we? Father, would you help us as we get into your word today? We thank you for the miracle of your word, your written word that's alive, and your spoken Holy Spirit word to our hearts, which is equally ablaze and alive this morning. Help us to hear from you today what we need to hear, and help us to do what we hear you saying. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a great chapter because all the wrong people get blessed. And it's almost as if there's a wink from heaven to us and to those people that, hey, never forget, this is what God is like. He longs to bless, and his blessings can be found upon and in the most unlikely situations. If we go way back into the Old Testament, we read in Numbers some very familiar words. They're the words that God gave to Moses to give to his brother Aaron, who was the high priest, words to use to bless the people, words that we still use today. You will recognize them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, and so on. And then notice what it says at the end. So they will put my name on the Israelites, so the blessing will put my name on the people and I will bless them. It's God's heart, God's desire to bring to our lives the richness of his blessing. And so they use the word in the Old Testament, shalom, which meant God's peace, God's blessing on everything, on the fullness of life. And so we as as God followers, as Jesus people, live in this long tradition of knowing and experiencing God's blessing, God's desires to bless, but, and this is the all-important but for understanding Luke chapter 7 and listening to what I think God wants to say to me and to us this morning, but it's a blessing that cannot be earned. A blessing that you can never deserve, a blessing that is never a reward, a blessing that's only ever a gift. 
not understanding the nature of the blessing often causes us to live outside of it. And that's what we're faced with in these verses. And as we'll see from this chapter, it gives the religious people a real problem. It gives them a problem because they think all of the time in terms of rewards. You do something and you get a reward. You behave in a certain way and God will reward you back in a certain measure. The amount that you give in a certain measure is the measure to which God will then return back to you. You earn it. It's like uh, on, on the wall of every Pharisee's home was a massive sticker chart. Are you still using sticker charts to make sure you wash your hands after you've been to the toilet? No, because you're more mature than that. But these religious people are living in that sticker chart mode. You do a little bit, I get a sticker. Do a little bit more, I get another sticker. And do you know what? If I get a few stickers, then I can call in my reward. Like Tesco club car points. If you have 600 million points, you can have a free pen. Thank you. Every little helps. Don't it? But that's the kind of mentality that Jesus is continuing to clash with here in these verses. But the blessing can never be earned. The blessing is never given in response to sticker charts. The blessing is only ever offered as a gift. And so a centurion gets blessed. That was a surprise. A widow gets blessed. That was even more of a surprise. And then a sinful woman, we didn't read about it, but it's the end of chapter 7 and we'll end there this morning. A sinful woman gets blessed and that's an even greater surprise still. The common denominator is this. They all discovered the secret. Grace unlocks God's blessing. If you want to know to live in God's blessing, if you want to be someone that gives out God's blessing, then grace is the key that you need to unlock that door. A few years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? It caused quite a stir amongst the Christian churches of the West because it described the lavish grace of God and then expose the lack of grace so often found in God's people. And talking of a lack of grace, if I lent you my copy of that book and you still haven't given it back, I'll smash your face in if I find out who it is. And the reason it caused such a stir was because God's grace is unbelievably lavish and it irritates us. And it irritates us. Let's get into it together. Luke chapter 7, verse 2. There's a centurion servant whom his master highly valued, valued highly, was sick and about to die. This is a sobering moment for a powerful man. This man had a hundred soldiers under his command. He was tough. He was aggressive. He was on top of his game. He needed to be in order to be there. He'd arrive where he was by standing on the heads of others. Over time, though, and understandably, he'd grown fond of this servant who had served him in his home and uh, probably living with him and traveling with him. They'd become companions in life as much as a master and a slave. But now his confidant, his friend, is sick and this man who has been able to control everything in his life now faces a situation that he cannot control. There's nothing worse, is there? 
than things we cannot control. You are at your most happiest when you think you've got everything under control. For some of you, you've just understood why you're so miserable. (laughs) But we are at our most blessed when we think, and it's only an illusion, when we perceive that we've got everything under control. The moment something happens that is outside of our control, our response is usually over the top. A mother will be over the top anxious about a child with a high temperature because it's something that she cannot control. And whatever floats your boat, think of something in your experience that causes an over-the-top reaction in you because you know it's something that's outside of your control. But it is an illusion. And it's worth calling it what it is just for a moment. It is an illusion. You cannot control anything. You cannot control anything. And you can spend the whole of your life trying, and it's exhausting. We can spend all of our lives seeking to control and we end up popping pills to keep ourselves peaceful about the things that we cannot control. Maybe it's time to give up control for something better and we'll get there as well this morning. Give up control for something better. So for this centurion, the bubble of his illusion has been burst. Feel sorry for him because we all know what it's like to be there. When something is happening to us that we do not like and we cannot control it. And for all his human authority, his servant is sick and he can do nothing about it. He hears about Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus personally, it would seem at first, but he knows a lot about him and he knows that some local Jews, some local people, the religious Jews, do know Jesus. So he sends the Jews to go and speak to Jesus. The centurion, verse 3, heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal this servant. We don't know, to be fair, what exactly the centurion asked those religious Jews to say to Jesus. But by the time those religious Jews get to Jesus, they've done what religious people do, and that's created a very religiously sounding message. They've religiousized, if there's such a word, the message from the centurion. Listen to what they say. They're already back to their star chart. They can't get away from it. They live for the stars. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, this man deserves to have you do this. Jesus, look at this man's star chart. He's got really big stars because he loved our nation and he helped us build our synagogue. Bet God's going, wow, that's impressive. But that's their mentality. And they're pleading to Jesus. Jesus, you need to do this. Jesus, you owe him because of the stars that he's got on his chart. Because he has helped our people and built the synagogue and so on. He might be a Gentile, He might be a pagan, he might be a leader in an occupying army, but he's done some things that have earned him the right for you at least to go and heal his servant. Now, a common approach of any occupying commander would be to appease the nation that they were occupying by doing things like building the synagogue and so on. So it's not a surprising scenario. Jesus, you are in this man's debt you owe him. Isn't that weird? Kind of absurd? About as absurd as every other religious act that this planet has ever, ever seen. As if God owes us. 
the religious mindset that God owes us something because we've done some good to deserve it, is, at its root, absolutely demonic. Absolutely demonic. It is the one lie that completely undermines the gospel. And that's why we see it everywhere we look. That's why the human heart, as Martin Luther said, um, I forget the exact quote, he said, uh, uh, the, the human heart has a natural tendency to be religious. A natural bent to, do, to want to earn something. And Jesus comes along with something very, very different. And we need to expose that demonic attitude that lies in all of us that says, if only I do a little bit, then somehow God will owe me. And when I need to, I'll call in that favor. And if God doesn't respond when I call in the favor, I'll get angry and bitter with him. That will show him as well. And we live like that sometimes. Although we wouldn't call it that, because that doesn't sound very nice. But that's what goes on in our hearts. And it's not just me, is it? Phew. It's always a risk. Our goodness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. Rags. And some of you instinctively, and I can even feel it in myself instinctively, want to be a little bit offended by that. Surely my goodness is a little better than that. But it depends who you compare yourself with. Immediately as we start talking like this, I I kind of want to look around the room and decide who I'm better at something then. That's not just me either, is it? So we think of someone that we can compare ourselves with and then satisfy ourselves that, well, actually, I'm not as bad as them, so therefore I'm pretty good. Remember what happened to Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry? He rocks up in the temple and something surprising happened. Jesus turned up in his own temple. The king turned up. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and what happened next was the very first thing that Isaiah said. Isaiah chapter 6. I am ruined. I am ruined. Why? Because in the presence of someone who is good, I'm exposed. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people, he says, of unclean lips. I'm ruined. But then that beautiful moment when a coal comes from the altar, the sacrifice of Jesus, and then we followed that thread through the story last year, and touched his lips, and he was clean, he was healed and, and forgiven, and, and then sent out to be a preacher of the, of the kingdom. Who are you measuring yourself with? I'm pretty good. That's what they're saying. So they're saying to this centurion, they're saying to Jesus, this centurion, he might look like he's not very good, he might look like a Gentile, he might look like a pagan, he might have a job leading an occupying army, but actually he's got enough credit in his chart, stickers on the chart, so you owe him. Who are you comparing yourself with? So these religious are attempting to twist Jesus' arm. Amazingly, Jesus says, okay, I'll go. I'll go. Why? I don't know. Maybe because he knew the centurion's heart and not the heart of these religious leaders. So they start making their way to the centurion's house. As they do, the true heart of the centurion is revealed. Suddenly, for whatever reason, maybe he understood it all along and he'd only just heard the kind of report that the Jewish leaders had made to Jesus. Suddenly he changes his mind. Or perhaps it was his mind all along. I'm not worthy of this. I do not deserve this. That There is nothing in me that has earned the right for this man to come to my house. 
There is nothing in my life that can cause me to plead that he really ought to come. Otherwise, he's being in some way unfair. Otherwise, the morality of the universe will be tipped out of balance. I don't have any credit to call in, any favours I can fall back on. So tell him not to come. Tell him he can't come. I'm not worthy of him coming into my house. But if he wants to, out of his own free choice, if he wants to, if he chooses to, not because I've earned it or demanded, but simply because he can and he wills to, I know that he can just say the word. And so I'm going to leave it at that. Really important lines of principles being drawn here in this story. It was the realization that actually Jesus owes you nothing. Nothing. Jesus, you owe him nothing. But if you say the word. So Jesus went uh, with them. He's not far from the house. When the centurion sent friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. For I myself, verse 8, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. I've got nothing to offer, is what the centurion is saying. No bargaining power. Nothing I can twist your arm with. But if you say the word. You see, the centurion knew, and that's why Jesus commended him. The centurion knew that in the end, it was Jesus only. He could do it if he wanted to, and he didn't have to do it if he didn't. There was no bargaining, there was no payment, there were no favours, no sticker charts, nothing he could call in. Jesus. Only Jesus. What does Jesus say in the face of this man's faith? Who recognised that it was only Jesus. He's amazed. I've not found such great faith even in Israel. The people that I thought would understand this have not understood it. It's taken a pagan centurion to understand that faith is simply putting your trust in him for no other reason than he is the one who is worth putting our trust and our faith in. Jesus' goodness, faith in his heart, not in our own goodness. You see, essentially what those Jewish religious people were doing was saying that the, the, the centurion's goodness is enough to bring about this salvation. You need to do it, Jesus, because this centurion, well, well, he's done enough things to earn it. Where is the faith? Where is the trust? The trust is in what the centurion has done, in his goodness. And Jesus says, no. That's not the faith I'm looking for. I can find that type of faith, actually, all over Israel. All over Israel there are people putting faith in their own goodness. What I'm looking for is someone who will just put faith in who I am. If you say the word, but if you don't. If you say the word, but if you don't. I'm looking for that kind of faith. And so, just to make sure everyone understood the point, Luke brings next a story of a widow who is both hopeless and powerless. Someone with no rights, someone with no influence, someone who was totally dependent upon her son, who was now dead. She has nothing, she is nothing. In that culture, in that context, it's over for her. She had nothing to give. Everybody knew this woman had nothing 
to give. She couldn't repay Jesus in any way. There was nothing on her sticker chart. There was no credit in the bank. She was hopeless and helpless. And so as the story unfolds, we get this glimpse of what the driving force is. What is the reason that the story unfolds? Why is she met by Jesus in this way? Is it her merit? Has she done 20 years as a Sunday school teacher so she deserves it? Has she attended church regularly all her life? Never missed a church meeting? Is there some good that she's, that she's built up that, that means that Jesus now owes her something? No. Nothing. How many stickers on her chart? None. So what do we read? Soon after, Jesus went to a town called Nain, verse 11, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. What's the motivation? What's the driving force? What's the reason that Jesus intervenes? Compassion. Jesus' heart. It is the character of Jesus. It's God's character. It's his goodness. It's who he is that creates this story. This is nothing to do with some human goodness manipulating God. This is about God's innate goodness. The person that he is. That's where our trust, that's where our hearts need to be placed. We need to have faith, not in our own goodness, not in what we've achieved, but our hearts, sorry, our faith needs to be in God's heart, in who he is, and nothing more. The centurion got to a point where he said, well, all I can do is trust this Jesus. He'll either do it or he won't. I put my trust in who Jesus is. This widow didn't even get that far. She had nothing to offer. The story unfolds to show everything about this story is is grace from beginning to end. This is God's heart reaching out to this woman in a desperate situation, in difficult circumstances. Every act of faith, every trust, needs to be on and in the goodness of God. Every time you pray, it needs to be on the basis of God's goodness. And that's difficult. Because often we're quite thrilled with some of the things we've done that make us think God owes us a little. Every reaching out to God needs to be from the perspective that there is absolutely nothing in me that I can appeal to in order to attract God's interest. In fact, quite the opposite. Religion teaches us that we are good and that God cannot be trusted. Think about that for a moment. Religion teaches that, God, that we are good, and that God cannot be trusted. Because religion says, if I do enough of these good things, then God will be obliged to respond to me in some way. It's a terrible, terrible burden to live under, isn't it? Because I never know whether I've done enough. And at the end of the next day, I go back to God. Is that enough? Will you have mercy on me, God? Will you? Where's my faith? My faith is in my own goodness. 
My faith is in my own heart, my own ability to achieve something. And Jesus is driving a coach and horses, a bulldozer, through all of that mentality and and way of thinking through these different scenarios in Luke chapter 7. We approach God on the basis that we deserve nothing. So then he went up and touched the coffin, verse 14, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And a beautiful phrase, Jesus gave him back to his mother. And then verse 16, religious people can't get away from it. They were all filled with awe and praised God, I should think so. A great prophet has appeared among us, that's true, they said. God has come to help, with the emphasis here, his people. Even then, as if somehow they've deserved it by being his people. They seem to have forgotten that the only reason they're his people was because he chose them in the first place. There was nothing good about Israel that made God say, they're jolly good people, I'll save them. Remember when God called Abraham out of his father's household? Abraham called a pagan worshipper. God called a a pagan worshipper. Abraham said, come follow me. People want to earn it. People want to deserve it. Uh, And God says, no, it's not even the same book. You can't deserve or earn any of this. And then this theme kind of takes a break, it would appear, by, by a little story about John the Baptist, who's beginning to wonder whether Jesus really was the Christ. He's been in prison, he's been locked away from what's going on. But notice what it says there, just in the middle, verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God was the way was right, because they'd been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they'd not been baptized by John. In other words, they had chosen to continue to trust in their own righteousness. This is exactly what this whole chapter is about. Who are you going to trust to get God to bless you? I'm assuming, by the way, that you want God to bless you. I'm assuming you want God's blessing on your life, on your family, on your relationships, on this church. What are we going to do to get God to bless us? The Jewish religious leaders said, well, let's go to God and tell him how much we've done. Build a synagogue, love the nation. Let's go to God and impress him with our good works. And Jesus says, no, not at all. I will give when people realize there is nothing in them that deserves it. And if you've ever wondered why the church is full of motley people from all around the world in every culture, it's because those are the people with enough grace to say, I didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve it. Fast forward then to the last story in this chapter as we come into land. When Jesus rams the point home, the key to God's blessing is grace. You haven't deserved it and you cannot earn it. So you get this contrast. The Pharisee who thinks he's got everything to offer Jesus. He's giving Jesus the invitation of the year to come to his house for a meal and using the kind of Greek context of a symposium, a a religious discussion. So he's inviting Jesus to a a meal of honour. And Simon's pretty impressed with himself. He can offer Jesus hospitality. He can offer Jesus his wisdom, his insight, his status and reputation. He's looking forward to a a robust conversation where perhaps this Pharisee can teach this young carpenter a thing or two. Well, we'll see. And then a woman who can offer Jesus absolutely nothing. 
comes into the room. Who will Jesus choose to bless? On whom will God's blessing fall? The person who thinks that he or she has done pretty well, considering, or the person who knows they haven't made it. Simon the Pharisee expected the blessing to fall on him. But then this woman walks in. When a woman, verse 37, who had lived a sinful life in the town, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Her look, her smell, her walk, all confirmed who she was. As if Jesus didn't know, Simon the Pharisee was kind enough to point it out to her. Don't you love that about religious people? Do you know who that is? Just for prayer, you know. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who he is touching, who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Thanks, Simon, for that blindingly huge insight. The Pharisee believed he'd earned the right to receive Jesus' attention. The woman knew that she had nothing to bring. So there he is, full of his own merit, full of his own credentials. And what he's saying is, Jesus, do you realize who that is who's interrupting us? I am the one that has more stickers on the chart than she does. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you realize she, she's even lost her chart, let alone her stickers that she never had? Here's my chart and my stickers. Tell her to go away while we do things that are important. That's what's going on. Don't, don't you know, Jesus, who she is? The sooner you get rid of her, the better for all of us. Because she has no stickers on her chart. So who's he trusting in? He's trusting in his own goodness. He's trusting in his own ability. He's trusting in what he can bring to the table for himself. And and Jesus says, okay, just hang on a minute. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about two men who owned money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he created, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? This is a brilliant story from Jesus. Shortest parable, but probably one of the most insightful. Every religious person knew that the task, supposedly, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was a Shema, what they would have repeated from birth back in the Old Testament. They were to love God and love their neighbor. Jesus tells a story that highlights that the person who's likely to love the most is the person who's been the most sinful. So if Simon the Pharisee wants to identify as someone who really loves the Lord, he'll have to admit that he was the sinner in the... Do you see? Clever, hey? God's smart. So Simon doesn't know how to answer. He can't bring himself to say he's a sinner and therefore loves the Lord a lot. But if he doesn't love the Lord a lot, he exposes the uselessness of his religion. Got him. So with a bit of coughing and spluttering, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debts cancelled. With a wink and a nudge, Jesus said, Well done, young man. You've answered correctly. And the room went silent for a moment, I'm sure. Yes. No, different one. Different one. The Bible's full of sinful women. 
and sinful men, I might add. (laughs) So there we are in this silence for a moment when Simon the Pharisee, trusted in his own righteousness, is utterly exposed. And he's wondering where on earth this can go. And then Jesus gently turns to this woman. He turned, verse 44, to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? He hadn't seen her at all, had he? What had he seen? He'd seen a sinner. Had he seen the woman? No. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Simon, you have not got past your own goodness. And because you've been focused on your own goodness, you've missed all the common courtesies that I would have expected coming into your home. You've invited me into your home, but it's all been about you. It's all been about your sticker chart. It's all been about how many more stickers you can get on your chart just because you've had me for a meal. My blessing's coming, but it's not falling on you. Because you've got no idea, Simon, how much you need to be forgiven, just like this woman. The place of blessing, the moment of forgiveness, is absolutely free, but it comes at a cost. The cost of recognizing you've got nothing to bring. The cost of laying your life before God and saying there is nothing at all in me. That means you owe me, no favours I can call in, no bribe I can make, no moral credit in my spiritual bank. Like the widow of Nain, I come with nothing. And like the widow of Nain, I'm desperate and helpless. And like the centurion, I need to realise that I cannot convince Jesus to help me on the basis of my own goodness. And so like the sinful woman, I need to decide that it doesn't matter who knows. It doesn't matter in the end who looks at me in a, in, in a, in a, in a disgusting way as those religious people would have looked with, with absolute uh, a sense of, of despising of this, of this sinful woman. I'm going to push past all of that because I've got to get to Jesus just as I am with nothing to bring. And then I'll receive from him the blessing that he promised Aaron years ago. We sing Rock of Ages, cleft of me sometimes. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I Very simple question in these last two minutes. Very simple question. On what basis are you approaching God this morning? On what basis? For what reason today should God bless you? Is there any hint in your spiritual life that somewhere within you lurks the feeling that God owes you, doesn't he? Does God owe you because you've served him faithfully at church for as long as you can remember? 
Does he owe you because you've stayed in a difficult marriage for more years than you care to count? Does he owe you because you've put up with a difficult boss or a difficult neighbor? Does he owe you because you've faithfully paid your tithe? Does he owe you because you've never missed a church weekend? A monthly communion? A Sunday service? Does he owe you because you get up early to read your Bible? Does he owe you because sometimes you go without food for spiritual purposes? Does he owe you because you let the small group use your house as long as they take their shoes off? Where is the tendency in you to think that God owes you something? If you say you do not have one, 1 John 1 would say you deceive yourself. And you make God's word out to be a lie. Because in all of us, there are places and times when we feel God owes us. When you're crying out to God for something you desperately want him to do, and he's not doing it fast enough, the first thing you will do will think about all the reasons why God should do it for you. Because you're a better Christian than the person sitting next to you or behind you. So be careful who you sit next to in church. Something in you, very quickly, if God doesn't answer your prayer, will rise up and say, well, God should answer my prayer. Doesn't he know who I am? Ah, yes, he does know exactly who you are, for sure. And that's why he bled and he died. That's why. Nothing to bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That song that John sang halfway through the worship was inspirational. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Perhaps, John, you can come and we'll just sing it together. The first, I don't know, I can't even remember whether it's verses or choruses or what, but it, basically, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Something, something, make me clean. <laughs> if you don't know, just go, mm, 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 mm. nothing but the blood of Jesus. But it's true. It's true. And yet we come to church and we come to our religious times and we come to our prayer meetings think, God, you owe me. And God says, give me a break. I don't owe you anything. But hear this. Trust in my goodness. Trust in my heart. You know, we talked about life being out of control right at the beginning. The best and only antidote to being stressed up to here because you cannot control your life is to put your trust in God who is always, always good. Let's respond with our hearts.